This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. How interested on the sad in you? <laughs> You're a bit public. You've never heard a story like this. Catherine Perez Shakdam lives in the UK. She's also lived in France, Yemen, and Iran. And while in Tehran, married with kids, she mixed in the theocracy's higher echelons, socializing, even going on pilgrimages to Iraq. Nothing unusual about that, you say? You ready? Catherine is Jewish, of French Sephardi background. And as an outsider in plain sight in Iran, Catherine never revealed her Jewishness, obviously, and so got up close to the regime. It's a deeply political and ideological one, not religious, even nihilistic, she says. In Yemen, Catherine started writing articles critical of the Saudis, which came to the attention of Iran. And while living there, she asked for and managed to get a private audience with the Ayatollah Khamenei. This is a highly revealing and detailed story of what drives Iran's ruling class, a forensic eyewitness of a regime which she says infiltrates the West with murder on their minds. And that's not all about Catherine. She's descended from Sephardim who stayed in Spain for centuries after the 1492 expulsion. The 1930s, in fact, when her family ran from Franco's fascists aiming for Palestine with tragic consequences. So this is also a story of Jewish resilience, how trauma can travel through generations but emerge triumphant in a culture which strives for a better life for its children, even at the cost to oneself. I think the reason why we survive evil so well is because we have a profound love and respect for life and we're quite determined to make the world a better place for our children, whatever that means for us. And I think that it says a lot to our ability to not only manoeuvre through hard times but also, um, you know, why Israel is the way it is today. Uh, how literally from desert and sand we managed to, you know, to build a beautiful, thriving democracy. Johnny Gould's Jewish state has majored on the Iranian theocracy in recent episodes. Scroll back one for the king of outsized outreach, the outspoken Eddie Cohen, who tweets to half a million Arabs every single day. Go one further back to follow the path of Abraham with Jason Greenblatt. Part of the Biden administration's problem is that they see this regime as if this regime thinks like us, like Americans, like Europeans, like the United Kingdom. They don't. They want to rule over these people. They, frankly, besides wanting to destroy Israel and probably destroy America, they want to take over the Middle East. They probably want nothing more than to be, you know, enjoying Dubai, these beautiful, gleaming glass towers in Dubai, Abu Dhabi, Doha, and elsewhere. And people don't understand that. This is not the Iranian people issue, it's the Iranian theocracy, the regime, the murderous ideology. 
and another couple of episodes back too to our man in Geneva watching the UN, Hillel Neuer. These are brazen attempts of assassination on U.S. soil while America and, and its European allies are sitting in Vienna with the Iranians working on a nuclear deal. And who, who would negotiate with people who are assassinating human rights activists in, in Brooklyn in your country? I think it's absolutely absurd, and the fact that America is not responding is a case of the folly of the virtuous uh, encouraging the malice of the wicked to paraphrase Churchill. Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Catherine Perez Shackdown, welcome to Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Thank you so much for having me. Well, look, we met because we you were on my show on Talk TV. Uh, be- was. Because my producer, Ted, said, look, I know you're predisposed to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to the Middle East. I know someone who can come on the show to talk about Iran. And it was you. And as I read about you, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm still sort of learning about you, you are, how should we say this, a rather unique eyewitness yes. to the Iranian Islamic regime. Mm-hmm. And you know a great deal more than probably anyone in the West does today. Yeah, I, th- I think I do. I think I do. And only because, I mean, look, a lot of people, you know, have a lot of expertise and they probably know a lot more than I do. Um, but I have first-hand experience in that I moved, you know, within the regime and I had access to, I say, some interesting people while I was there. And, and I don't think that it's, it hasn't been replicated. I don't think. No. And what we should say you were there it doesn't mean you were on a two week holiday with a tourist visa oh no no you were embedded in mm-hmm. Iranian society revolutionary guard society yes. the higher echelons of the theocratic society as well mm-hmm. well I mean I took uh, I took a trip with uh, now President Raisi in his private plane when he was on the in his uh, presidential campaign in 2017 so that was interesting how did you do this I didn't. They, they invited me. They invited they you. They invited me. So it, it took. Look, you don't you don't break into you know the Islamic Republic, um, and I and I figured a long time ago that I would need to basically set the scene in order for me to get invited. Otherwise, it's a case of you would lose your head. Um, I mean, you can see there's many people that have been arrested on you know bogus um, allegations, and you know they sit in jail for years and years and years. And I wasn't planning on doing that. Um, so I, I did my homework um, and I realized that the only way to go around their paranoia is this, it would be for them to invite me right? Um, and therefore vet me ahead of time and for them to decide that I was so very useful that there would be no question as to who I was or why I was there. Uh, and the government invitation is the best cover, isn't it? In order to be invited, A, you have to be there. B, you have to be there under certain circumstances. You just have to be useful. Yeah, but why were you there? How did you have doors open to you? And how could they have not known that you were born Jewish, that you're a Zionist? Mm-hmm. How did this... This well, just sounds unbelievable. Look, the whole Zionist thing, it's because, um, you know, I lived in the Middle East. I lived in Yemen. For right. a bit. My ex-husband is from there. So... I mean, I understood really, really early on, I was married when I was 18, that in order to, you know, have a peaceful life in in the Middle East, you don't go around screaming that you're a Zionist. Um, No. And, I mean, it's a matter of survival. So, Um, also, I think for a very long time, I actually wasn't a Zionist in the sense that 
you know, it was almost beaten out of me. Not, not, you know, um, I mean, I'm... In your marriage, not as a child. Yeah, in my marriage. And I, I'm not talking about, you know, physical, you know, yeah. physical violence. I'm talking about, you know, constant bullying and anti-Semitism on, sure. on a daily basis. Um, it, it takes the wind out of you a little bit. And so, you know, you, you abuse on that level. When it's so systematic, you kind of internalize, internalize yes. it. And um, for quite some time, I was actually quite angry at Israel for existing. And only because I felt that Israel was the source of my trouble in my marriage. And that, you know, the whole Israeli identity was actually thrown onto me when I, I didn't feel Israeli because I was French. Um, and that I didn't quite understand I was quite young and I didn't understand, you know, why is it that not, not being an Israeli, I was being blamed for some of Israel's policies. Can we have some colour of your own background? Now, you are from a French Sephardi family. Mm -hmm. Some of it's North African. Yes. Some of it's actually Spanish. Yes. And the name Perez, that's a bit more understandable from Spain, Shakdam. Mm -hmm. How does it all work? How does it all come together? Okay, so Perez is my major name. Yes. So that's a reflection of my, my you know, cultural, religious, ethnic heritage. It's a very French Sephardi North African yes, name. It is. And Spanish, of course. Yes, yes it is. Before 1492. Oh, right, you do know your history. <laughs> a bit, yeah. Uh, and Shakdam is my married name. Right. So the reason why I hyphened it is... Um, until such a time where my children decide to change their name or not, uh, I decided that it was a good idea to carry the same name. So. Well, it's got the lot, hasn't it? Your name has the lot. Yes. Well, you know, we, we often stay at home that we kind of like the UN, so <laughs> we <laughs> yeah. like to add colour. All the flags are out today. Exactly. Just peg and back so, a bit here. Yes. You were born in France mm -hmm. to a North African Sephardi family. Yes. You ended up marrying as a teenager mm -hmm. to a Yemenite Sunni Muslim mm -hmm. Arab. Yeah, I did that's, that. That's quite, an, that's quite a broad description mm -hmm. there. How did this all happen? Uh, it was complicated. My mom died. I was 11. Right. Um, I was then sent to boarding school. Right. So I think there was a lot of upset, you know, between me and my dad. Um, and I didn't feel very cared for. I felt... Because uh, my dad was very secular and he had a massive issue with his own Jewish identity. He wrestled with it quite a lot, where he was trying to blend into French society. Um, he had aspirations to become a politician in France. It didn't happen um, because of his you know, Jewish background. Um, and he was, you know, very early on. I mean, he went to all the right schools and, you know, lost his North African accent and made sure that, you know, he was, you know, proper. Really French. Mm -hmm. He was very, very French. Um, but, you know, doors were basically closed in his face on the basis that, you know, he was a Jew and that wasn't going to happen. Um, and I think he, he was quite angry about this. He felt that he felt it was a burden and um, it's not something to be celebrated. I think he was quite upset. Um, there's a lot of things. I mean, there was, uh, I think he also lived with his parents' trauma that they never got over. Um, Which was a Holocaust trauma? Mm-hmm. Yes, it was. In North Africa. In North Africa and Tunisia. So my grandparents were in a camp. They lost a son, um, several other family members. And in North Africa? In North Africa and it's Tunisia. It's important to record this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it's not talked about enough. No. People, um, it wasn't a death camp, that's important to note. Um, but it doesn't mean that people were not suffering tremendously and people were dying too of you know, hunger, diseases. Um, you know, mistreatment, things like that. There were executions. Um, so, yeah, it, it was, I think, even though he was born after, uh, he lived with, you know, the trauma of his parents. It wasn't talked about back then. There was a lot of guilt. Um, people got on with things. Um, and I think he was very resentful of many different things, you know, the way that his life went, um, the fact that, you know, he found himself 
with with Uta, um, not knowing what to do with me. Yeah. Um, you know, after my mom passed away, so it was it was complicated. And in that era in France, there was a secular environment where mm-hmm. Jews could actually reinvent themselves. Yeah, and that, he exactly did that. But you know, he very quickly realized that. Um, his Jewishness was a bit too much for people to handle in France, even back then. Because yeah. the 1970s and 80s were okay in France, okay. Um, on the basis that I think there was still a lot of guilt. Mm. Um, and Islamic radicalism wasn't so much a thing. So there was a period where there was a bit of a, I wouldn't say a comfortable space in France, but anti-Semitism wasn't too rife. But then... You know, it went back up and then... It's been reinvented. Yes, definitely. Now, the Spanish part of your family was actually sustained in Spain, Mm -hmm. despite the Inquisition, were secret Jews in rural areas. Mm -hmm. This Mm -hmm. went on between 1492 and, say, the 1950s. Yes, so my family on my father's side is slightly, not complicated, but I think they survived a lot. So they stayed in, in Spain. Uh, they survived, you know, centuries and centuries of, of oppression. And um, how did they stay Jewish? They pretended to be Catholics in public? No, they didn't pretend anything. They were just very quiet and kept to themselves. They lived in a very remote area. Uh, in and they were of, Jews? Yes, they were and Jews. And they went to synagogue? No, no. How did they practice their difference? Like many, many people. So they lit candles behind curtains? That was exactly that. And a, they said, never forget you're Jewish, even if perhaps you might be called Jose Maria mm-hmm. and have to exist in the completely non-Jewish. But it was quite a big community that, you know, uh, basically survived this way, where they lived, you know, Judaism behind closed doors. It was something that was practiced at home. Um, not necessarily hidden in that the rest of the community that they were living among did not know who they were, but it wasn't advertised. So they kind of kept to themselves. And again, I think that because they lived in a very rural area, no one was really concerned about them. They didn't pose a threat to the and church. And did the real non-Jews know who the Jews were? Yes, they were? did. They did. And, and, but they never got outed or... Not really. Not really. But again, you know, when you live in the countryside and, you know, people kind of know each other since, you know, the beginning of time, I think that people didn't mind them. Not really. They were not troublemakers. No. And um, did the Jewish and non-Jewish world interact or was the marriages always between these secret Jews? How no, did that they, work? They kind of, they kind of kept to, uh, to themselves, themselves that way. Yeah. I See, mean, this is 500 years yeah. of this. Yeah. But oh. you know, what is interesting to me is that it's never talked about. Not really. It's not something yeah. that we, we looked into for some reason. Um, but anyway, so he decided, well, my grandfather did, that... Um, I like the we decided. Well, no. Because it it's sort really, of transcendental. It wasn't really a we, because I think there was, a, there was a lot of... He carried a lot of guilt because of it. He decided to espouse communism. Um, and in, you know, Franco-Spain, 1930s, that wasn't a good idea. And Is that he a dog was whistle quite... for being Jewish, though, as well? A kind of secular way of saying... I'm a Jew. I'm not a right-wing authoritarian fascist mainstream. I think person. he wanted. I think he wanted to bring about a change, and he thought that that was the way to do it. You know, to uh, to advocate for, you know, equality and what he felt, you know, was going to be a utopia. Um, and he was quite vocal about his political position. And I think that because of it, uh, the regime at the time uh, took offence. And um, an order was sent out to basically arrest him for him to be then, you know, executed. And then the decision was made uh, to run away. 
And the initial plan was to run away to, to Israel, which was the mandate of Palestine at the time. Um, so they, they managed to escape Spain, uh, took a boat to go to Tunisia. And then from Tunisia, the plan was to continue on to, um, Palestine. to Palestine. So we're talking the 30s here. Yes, yes. Uh, unfortunately, timing was a little bit off. By the time they arrived in Tunisia, about a month later, um, the Nazis invaded. And so they found themselves caught in, you know, the horror of the Holocaust um, and uh, ended up in a camp in the north of Tunisia. Um, and they suffered tremendously. Uh, it wasn't a death camp. I didn't want to, to make any comparison. Like a labor camp. It was a labor camp. Uh, it was a concentration camp where people were literally left to die with very little food, no medicine. Um, and they lost a son to typhoid and, and tuberculosis, hunger. I mean, it, it, was, it was a horrible time for them. And, you know, my, my uncle who survived it um, didn't, very, didn't like to talk about it too much. So I had snippets of, you know, use, you know, sometimes he was telling you certain stories. Um, it got really, really deep. And my father was born after it, so he didn't, he didn't witness any of it. Uh, but it's something that really marked our family. Um, and my grandparents decided to, to never leave and to stay in Tunisia um, because my grandmother couldn't bear the idea of leaving her son behind. Um, she didn't want to emigrate uh, in yet another country um, and leave her baby behind. That's the way she, um, she saw it. And it's something that profoundly marked my father in that he, he very much saw you know, his Jewish identity as an impediment to his freedom and ability to, um, to be safe. And he pretty much spent the rest of his life trying to negate it and erase it. Because he was brought up in France. Yes, why well, he was brought up in Tunisia, which was still under the French mandate at the time. But then by the time he was 18, um, and then that was um, 1968, he moved to France to pursue his, uh, his studies and um, never looked back. Are you playing catch-up with Johnny Gould's Jewish State? I've had the pleasure of some really great guests. How about Douglas Murray? Israel is a rare country in the West uh, in that it does buck many of the trends. I mean, there, isn't a, there isn't a fertility rate problem in, in Israel, um, for instance, as there, there is in, in most European countries. There is a strong feeling of nationhood and of the depths that the country needs to call upon in order to unite its people. And Hillel Neuer, whose UN watch keeps check on the excesses and mission creep of the UN human rights in Geneva. The challenges are great. They're not going away. I am concerned by the cultural revolution that we've experienced in America in the past five years, the known to some of the woke revolution, where there's a kind of a McCarthyism. If you say something, it could be cancelled and fired from your university, from your corporation, uh, from uh, journalists. And often it's, uh, it's an anti-liberalism. So that, that, to be honest, really, really scares me because we need our democracies to be healthy, to be honest, to be, to be truth-tellers. And so I am deeply concerned. If you like Johnny's regular podcasts, think about making a donation at either patreon.com slash johnnygould or buy him a coffee. He loves coffee. ko-fi.com slash johnnygould.
as people will see pictures of you on Google, mm -hmm. is a lot of them are in, in a veil. Yes, because I was yeah. in Iran. That yeah. was your Persian, Iranian. Yes. <laughs> she alive. Yes. And here we are, as you are now, mm -hmm. living your true identity. At last. At, At last. last. Yes. It was an interesting journey. And you did that because of these traumas perhaps in your family, the search for your own stability so young. It's, you know, it's, it's many things, uh, mainly because I made a mistake very young. Right. Marrying into, you know, this Muslim family, How having did you no... Do that? I was just looking for stability. What I about just... a Jewish guy? Well, if, if you had shown up, it would, right. have, been, it would have been nice, yeah. but it, it wasn't But you the knew case. that marrying a Muslim girl, no, I didn't. particularly with your background... I didn't, that's the thing. You didn't know? No, because in, in France, you know, back then, uh, Muslims were quite idea. secular, yes. and so in France, you know, in the, in the 1990s, 2000s, um, being Muslim was actually, you know, for me, the understanding I had of Islam was very secular. So yes. it was pretty much, you know, a religious identity that didn't really mean anything. Yes. Um, and so I didn't, I didn't see it as, a, as, a, as an issue. And I was quite open-minded, you know, being a daughter of the Republic, the French Republic. Yes. Um, secularism is, 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 was very much a thing for us where, you know, people differences, religiously speaking, did not matter because we were all very much secular. Yes. And so we could find other ways to kind of connect. And I had the delusion that it would work that way for me. Because there would have been the idea that you are both outsiders mm -hmm. to a Catholic world. Yes. That was the idea of everyone joining up together. Here we are. And I thought that my, you know, my understanding of the Middle East and, you know, having this uh, kind of North African identity and, you know, being the daughter of an immigrant, basically, um, you know, would, you know, kind of make each other relate. Yes. Um, and I mean, look, my, my father grew up in Tunisia. Up until he was 18, you know, with Arab friends and, um, you know, going to school with, you know, Italians and French. And I mean, there were many nationality kind of like, all, you know, crashing against one another and it was never a problem. So I just had it in my head that I was going to replicate that, that we would be able to rise above our differences and actually prove the world that it is possible. Mm -hmm. um, boy, was I wrong. Yeah, a bit wrong, <laughs> but only in the long term. Now. You obviously wrote very consistently against yes. the Saudis and Sunni Islam. Yes. For a very long time. Yes. How did you imbibe this belief system for so long to attract the attention of the top dog in Tehran? Okay, so I think that time played in my favor. In the sense that I just came at a juncture in history, in Iranian history, where they were actually looking for people who could formulate a good argument against Sunni radicalism, Saudi Arabia, which is, you know, the main uh, contender in the Middle East to Iran's hegemonic ambition. Um, and I, I think that they understood my rejection of Saudi Arabia and Saudi Arabia's agenda, which was pretty much, you know, for me, it wasn't so much political, but more to do with women's rights, human rights, and the danger that Islamic radicalism posed for our democracies. And I think that was misunderstood as a criticism against, you know, what they call the Sunni establishment. And that therefore my criticism of the West, that association to its, you know, friendship with Saudi Arabia was viewed as a, um, a mean to kind of indoctrinate me to their, to their worldview. Um, so you were a useful person from a completely different background. Yes. 
Very much Did they so. know who no. you were exactly? Did they think you were French? Yes. Did they think you were French Catholic? I don't think they thought about that, to be honest with you. They thought you were French. You know, there's something quite interesting about, um, you know, Islamic radicals is that when you're a woman and you marry into, you know, any Muslim family, yeah. what is Sunni or Shia, by the way? They just assume that you take on the you identity on of your that. husband and you disappear as, as an individual. And so that played in my favor in that they never looked beyond my husband's, my ex-husband's name. Yes. And assumed that because I was still married and we had children, I was a good girl. And I was, you know, literally an easy, you know, prey for their manipulation. Um, and the fact, you know, them reaching out to me just, you know, gave me the opportunity because I then realized that actually I had a way in and I could actually do a lot to help my people and actually, excuse my French, but literally stick it to all of them um, and and go where most people can't. Because... Your French is always excused, Catherine. Thank you so much. Um... I appreciate that. <laughs> so all of these mm. things in the background contributed you to building your own life very quickly. Yeah, I wanted and a family. You, you went to the Yemen, you went with yes. a new husband, mm -hmm. a Sunni Muslim. Not straight away. Not, not straight, straight away. away. No, no, you know, I had my kids. Um, things were not great, but, you know, I was of the mind that, you know, if I was married, I was, I was trying to stay married. Didn't work out that way anyway. Um, but so, yeah, we went to Yemen and then I, I kind of, you know, came to learn about the Islamic world. Um, I came to learn about radicalism, Islamic radicalism. It actually looks like from up close and personal. And I just simply decided that I wanted to do something about it. Um, I didn't know what it was going to look like at the time, but I knew that I wanted to be a witness um, and that I was going to use what I felt was a mistake because I personally, and that, that's only, that's my view, that you know, uh, marrying outside a lot of the time, especially in the Islamic world, is is a grave mistake. Because um, as a Jew, I've learned that you would never be accepted. No. Um, never mind as a Jew, but as even as a human being, that your value is actually none. Right. Um, that I was just an extension of my husband, and I was just there to basically pop babies, raise them, and and be very very quiet. Um, so I had a lot of resentment building up. Um, and I started writing. Writing was an outlet for me about, you know, what I understood was happening in the Middle East at the time. And were these published or were they your private thoughts written down? They were published, but mainly kind of locally. Right. Um, so, but, you know, some of my writing made, you know, their way to, you know, certain like, uh, you know, Arab outlet, they were translated. Um, and I think that's when I caught the attention of certain people because I was writing a lot against um, Saudi Arabia's, you know, human rights violation. So it was um, never against Israel. It was always against the Sunni Saudis. Oh yeah, I was. I was. I, I stayed away from the whole, you know, Israeli-Palestinian conflict because I didn't feel I had anything to bring to the table. To right. be honest, which I wasn't attracted the attention of the Iranian Shia theocracy. Yes. Yes. Hence, we now move from Yemen to Iran. Yes, and and so I started to get invitations on, you know, certain outlets, so TV outlets like Etija, which is basically Hezbollah run. Um, and then from A to J, you're then being passed on to, you know, Press TV and then, you know, Tasnia News Agency and then all the other news agency that work for either SEPA or the Defense Minister, whatever. Um, and I've done the run for many years because it took them a long time to kind of get comfortable with you. But then I do believe that I'm, I'm not a bad writer. 
um, that I can, I know how to convince people because if I believe in something, I could be quite passionate and I, you know, again, I'm a good writer, so I know how to, you know, formulate ideas. Um, I'm not a bad public speaker either, so I think I, you know... No, you're doing very well so far. Thank you. <laughs> uh, you know, so I, I was able to, you know, to speak on TV and to give interviews that right. actually made sense. And so I think that they saw in me a potential, because they're always looking for the next mouthpiece. They're looking for a mouthpiece. And were you doing this from inside Iran? Or were you doing this from Yemen? Or were you doing this from France? As it started off in Yemen. Right. And then came back to the UK. Um, and then did it in the UK. By the time I got back to the UK, I knew that I had something that they were desperate for, which was access to Yemen. Because they didn't have many... Um, what they thought were friendly to allies. the regime, allies, who had access to, to Yemen the way I did. Because um, while I was in Yemen... I, you know, I saw the, you know, the beginning of the Arab Spring and because Yemen is quite a small, it's a small community. When you live in Sana'a, the diplomatic community is quite small. Um, and because of, you know, because of school, for example, my daughter used to go to school with um, the daughter of the president's nephew, who was himself the head of um, central security forces. Um, so because of my daughter, I then made friends with the Saleh family. And so I had unbelievable access as far as the regime was concerned. And they were very interested in, you know, me acting as a bridge. And so they started courting me. And I saw in that uh, an opportunity that I wasn't going to pass down. And also, I, I, to be completely honest with you, I also wanted to kind of stick it to them for the whole, you know, the years and years of anti-Semitism I had suffered by then. And yes. I really wanted to um, to show them, well, you know, you've you've said so many times that, you know, we are a nefarious people, that we are a people, you know, worthy of destruction, that we are all those different things that you call us. Um, let me show you what we could do. Were you still married at this time? Uh, when I came back to the UK, and no, I really put right, just okay. So this was uh, something where your your Jewish values came out, your Zionism came yes, out. Yes, because I was then left free to kind of you know yeah. be myself, and it's. Um, you know, it, it takes a while to kind of find your footing again. But they trusted you because you were in a perceived social inner circle. Yes. And did they not do any proper due diligence I guess on you? not. I mean, I literally was went... Was the Perez bit not a giveaway? Uh, you would like to think so. I would have thought you, so. You would like to think so. I mean, you know. I mean, look, let me tell you a story. Because I was, that was, I was actually thinking, I'm not going to come out of this alive. But so did I went you think to, that for a while? No, just at one point. Right. At one point, because... I knew I was quite safe. Maybe I'm naive. Um, I don't know. But I, because, I, you know, it was under invitation. I knew so many people. Um, I was friends with those people. I mean, going back years and years and years. So, you know, they trusted me. And um, I had proven myself as far as they were concerned. And they were all doing this on face value. They didn't sort of dig deep and sort of look behind no, your eyes, you know. No, because, they just knew you from your sort of social circles in Tehran. Well, because I think the the need for me was so great that they they were kind of like so hungry, yeah. Um, you know, to find someone that could you know help them to export their ideology into the West. And actually were they attracted by your Westernism? You know, your I idea. I don't know you, what it was. You were from abroad. You're sort of chic. You're sort of different. You know. They like the French. Yeah. They do like the French. Like the French. And you know, they kept you know telling me, oh, you know, you you welcome you know Ayatollah Khomeini in his hour of need, and I think that bought me a lot of favors. The fact that I wasn't British, that I was French. Right. Um, and then therefore I wasn't the enemy there. 
Right. Um, it was quite interesting because if that you say you're British, they really don't like you and there's a lot of mistrust and paranoia immediately. When you say you have a French passport, they love you automatically and they start speaking to French, you know, in French to you. So I was like, okay. So this exceptional <laughs> naivety, this uh, idea that actually they let their guard down because they're so convinced of who they are. Yes. As actually a massive design fault in who they are and so enables people to infiltrate, which is what you did. I did. I did. But I think uh, because I've done it from so up high that nobody ever questioned it. So how far did you get? As far as I could go, <laughs> which is basically to the leadership. So you were there in a room with the Ayatollah. Well, yes. Um, so I've said no previously because I wasn't sure that it was the kind of information that I wanted to share just yet. But yes, I did, I did meet with him. And you talked to him? Yeah, for about half you, an hour. You interviewed him? No, it wasn't an interview as such because, well, exactly what happened was I was at a conference in Iran. Um, and then on the side of the conference, I was taken to, um, to have a shisha with uh, a bunch of people, RSGC people, intelligence, obviously. I mean, they didn't tell me that, but it doesn't take a genius to kind of figure it out. Um, because the way they move and, you know, I kind of figure out very quickly. I'm, you know, my, my grandfather was in the military, so I've kind of learned how to figure out... The French military. Yes. Nice. Um, so I knew how people moved in different... Forgive me to answer all these questions. We have to hone no, no, this no, of in. Course, of course. I have to know exactly. Your mm. story is so extraordinary. I don't know. <laughs> uh, it's pretty extraordinary. It is interesting, I'm going to say <laughs> that. Um, but I kind of figured out, because when I was there, I was observing, and I've noticed very quickly that how, for example... Um, you know, the, the kind of people, like who was surrounding, for example, at the time it was President Rouhani, the kind of people that were around him, the uniform they were wearing, how they were moving. Um, and so, you know, by that time, when I was asked to go to Shisha with these people, I figured out that because, you know, they had clearly armed men with them, but they were all in civilian clothes, yes. that they were SEPA intelligence um, because they just, they moved differently from everybody else and the way that people are reacting to them is a very t is kind of it tells you who and they of course are. they're an elite in society as well in a top-down theocratic dictatorship like that it's self-evident who's at the top eating from well, the you trough can, you can see you can see how regular iranians when you go to like you know a public place like the shisha place how they were reacting to them tells yeah. you exactly who they are yeah and how far up in the food chain how horrible it what is, but it's, it's, you know, those are kind of like telltale. Anyway, so we were having a conversation. They were asking many questions. And they asked me, like, you know, if you could ask for anything, what would you ask for? And I told them, well, obviously, I would love to sit down with Ayatollah Khamenei. Who wouldn't? And then they started laughing. And they told me, oh, fine, we could do it. And I was like, well, you're joking. And they were like, no, no, we could do it. We just need to ask, you know, we'll figure it out. Don't, don't worry. We might come call you and just be ready at a moment's notice and we'll tell you. Um, and on the, the very next day in the evening, they, I just received a phone call and tell me, be ready downstairs in 15 minutes. Phenomenal. We come to pick you up and they did. And, and I was, you know. So the Ayatollah Khamenei mm -hmm. sat down mm -hmm. with a Zionist yes. for 30 minutes. For 30 minutes. Got any photos? No, I don't. You're not allowed. No. No. So and my phone was taking from me. Um, you can't, you know, I mean, you know, obviously. That's a search. tremendous humiliation for him. Oh, they're paranoid. Yeah. So you can't you can't shake his hands, obviously. No. Um, that's and not sneered. That's not no, uh, a Jewish but issue. He, he does, no. <laughs> but anyway, so we had yeah we had we had obviously a translator because he doesn't speak English. Yes. Um, and does he speak French? No, he doesn't. So it's all Farsi. He speaks uh, he speaks Farsi, uh, Arabic, Arabic um, and I believe he speaks Turkish. Right. 
So this was a 30-minute audience mm-hmm. with the Ayatollah, not allowed we to be alone, recorded, not allowed to be, people. no, you were surrounded by his yeah. team. You're not allowed to write down no. his notes, but you no. can memorise everything he said. Yes. What did you talk about? Uh, what did we talk about? Well, he gave me a run. We t- he did a lot of the talking. Um, he gave me a rundown of you know the Islamic Republic's history and you know Ayatollah Khomeini, and um, he actually asked me if um, if I would like to write a book about you know his rise to power and you know the imprint that he had on on the on the Islamic Republic and the world. Um, what I found interesting is that he told me. Um, I mean, I know it would make people laugh, but I don't think he was laughing. He basically gave me a little rundown of, um, you know, Shia Islam uh, end days scenario and how Imam Mahdi, who is basically their messiah, would come about and return and how there were several signs foretelling of his return and that one of, well, two of them were actually the arrival of two, two of his generals that would be the forebearers of his message and that one of the general, they were being... They were known um, by their name, as in the um, the nickname that people would know them under, as opposed to their actual real name. Um, and he told me one of them would be called um, Al Khurasani, meaning that he comes from Al Khurasan area, and the other one would be called Al Yemeni, coming oh. from Yemen. And then uh, at this point, I told him and I said, "But you actually from the Khurasan region yourself?" He told me, "Yes, exactly." I was like, that's interesting. <laughs> and I told him, Abdel Malik Al Houthi calls himself Al Yemeni. And he was like, yes, I know. Uh, Abdel Malik Al Houthi, who's the head of the Houthi movement, where he actually believes to be um, one of the general of, you know, the awaited Imam. So he has that ambition. He wants to sell himself because Khomeini obviously was the father of the revolution. Uh, and I think he wants to top it off and actually present himself in the eyes of the Islamic world as uh, not the Messiah, obviously, Kongi Kongi uh, but at least he's general, and that he feels that he has a mission to introduce, you know, that imam. And in order for him to return, a great rule needs to take place with the apostates. Uh, and I'm afraid that those are us. The apostates yeah, are, of course, the, the Jewish Jews, state. The Jews. And Israel. Yes. Was there ever a moment in the conversation where you pushed the envelope? Any surprise nuggets? He speaks Turkish. He mm-hmm. speaks Farsi. Mm-hmm. You had a translator, you were speaking in French to him. Mm-hmm. Anything in there amongst the pleasantries exchanged? You mean in terms of, of what we talked about? You had 30 minutes with him. Yes, I it did. It wasn't just superficial, was it? No. Um, well, he, he, was, he was curious um, as to how the West was thinking. In terms, not in terms of like where do we sit on the political spectrum, but more about how do you... How do you convince the West? How do you bring, you know, Islam and, you know, this revolution of theirs into, into the West without scaring them too much? So he was quite curious about, you know, how do we crack that nut, psychologically speaking? How do we make them tolerate us? And how much can they take without catching on to what the agenda actually is? Um, you know, in terms of using freedom of speech, for example, and twisting on its head so that it becomes a weapon of the regime. Um, using our dedication to secularism and multiculturalism and turning it on its head and use it against us to further the, the regime's agenda. He also was quite curious as to what was the West's position towards Israel um, in terms of how 
does the West view the Jewish community? Is it a friendship with Israel on the basis of interest, strategic interest? Is it because Israel is a democracy? Is it guilt because of the Holocaust? Uh, is there still hatred and um, resentment towards the Jewish community for being Jews? Um, he was looking for cracks. He was looking to, um, to understand a Western psyche and figure out a way um, to rally around you know, people to their cause and also create tensions among you know, political parties and, and to basically use that unrest um, to create a space for themselves there. So in your half hour with uh, Ayatollah Khamenei, you said, oh, write a book yes. about me. Yes. How far did you get? Um, I've wrote three chapters of it. Um, and then I told them that my timetable did not allow me to, uh, to continue. I just couldn't. Um, I mean, they sent me, basically, it wasn't me. It wasn't about really me writing a book. Um, they literally fed me you know, a bunch of, you know, propaganda. Right. Um, and what they were trying to do is to rewrite his biography, um, trying to paint him as, um, you know, one of the general of, of Imam Mahdi, you know, the awaited messiah. Where he was basically hinted to the idea in, in, mytho in Shia mythology, they believe that before the return of their messiah, um, there will be two generals that would, you know, be the precursor to, to the end days um, and serve as, you know, those historical figures um, that, was, that were destined to lead the Islamic world, you know, against the, the apostates, mainly the Jews, mainly us. Um, and he was trying to paint himself as that mythological fighter um, and martyr for the Islamic world. And I, I just, you know, the... I couldn't. I couldn't do, do they it. not study at least or understand that that's been tried before even from their own country we have a festival called Purim mm -hmm. which chronicles <laughs> this the Megillah was a yes, big one yes, yes. now it's a bit of a fantasy it's like a remarkable victory for the Jews do you, do you want to you know like a funny story and it's quite brutal it's a, actually it's not a funny story but my Jewish name is actually Esther right uh, my grandfather gave it to me, which uh, I always thought was quite funny. Um, exactly I never, right. I never told them that story. But where was Mordechai? That's the <laughs> question. I'm looking for yeah. him. <laughs> uncle, you need an uncle figure. <laughs> but like, but seriously, I remember because Ed Hussein said to me, you know, uh, I interviewed him at Purim, and he said, uh, in that saintly and lovely way that Ed speaks, he said, uh, "May Iran return to the days of Purim." And I said, well, that would mean Mordechai, you know, uh, Raisi would turn out to be Jewish. And there'd be Queen Esther who'd marry somewhere inside the, uh, the palace, not sure. Wouldn't be fabulous then. It's a big shout. Yeah. And where's Vashti? There's probably loads of Vashtis oh knocking God. about. This dramatic chapter of your life end. Um, I don't think it ended on a certain date at a certain time, like no. a contract. No, no trauma. I think these, you know, I, I reached a point where, um, first of all, I saw that there was an acceleration in the radicalization of the agenda um, that I, I found so very difficult for me to stomach. Um, do you know when you sit in those rooms and, you know, people are constantly, constantly, um, you know, bashing Israel, bashing the Jews? Um, 
even though I had grown quite tolerant to it in the sense that I knew that I had a, you know, a, I was acting out, you know, a certain persona. Yeah. You know, this something at some point stirs in you and you're like, I can't take can't it do anymore. This anymore. I can't. And I just felt so disgusted by them that I couldn't put up the pretense anymore. Um, and also I was thinking to myself, how long are you going to pursue this? When will it be enough? And when will you decide to actually do something about it? You have collected evidence for years and years and years, you know, all those things about those people. Um, you know, now is the time to, to stop and yeah. actually do something about it. And so I very gently and quietly kind of like stepped away because I didn't want to make any wave. Um, went quiet for a little bit because, you know, I wanted to do that the right way. And I was basically waiting for the right moment and the right sign for me to say, okay, now is the time, you know, people are actually ready to, to hear me out because I was waiting for something to happen of significance that would, you know, make me useful and the expertise that I've basically gathered uh, to become relevant. Because again, it's not, it's not about what you know necessarily, it's what you do about it and when do you use it. And I didn't want it to, I didn't want the whole thing to go to waste. Um, and so I decided, you know, that also I was looking for the right outlet because I kind of wanted to go out with, you know, to kind of come out with a bank and tell them, oh, by the way. Um, and so I did this with the Times of Israel and it was, and I think that it couldn't have come at a more perfect moment. Um, because I literally set Iran on fire. The regime went nuts. Yes. And this was a Times of Israel article which said... Uh, I, what did I say? Oh, I talked about my interview with uh, President Raisi. Right. And I just, you know, and I was I was kind of like, oh, by the way, I'm Jewish. So, here's to you, Lechaim. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> your turn now. <laughs> That's phenomenal. Um, and was it headline-making in the Tehran... News oh, of yeah. the world. I'm, I've made, I've made Pictures every, of you on the front. everywhere. I mean, every news outlet, every, you know, internet, internet based news website. I mean, you name it. Um, there was literally, I mean, I had a conversation with uh, David Horridge, who's the editor in chief yeah. of the Times of Israel. And he was actually telling me that it's, it's um, the first time that he's, re he's receiving phone call directly from Iran. He, he found it quite interesting. Yeah. Um, because they're not supposed to be calling Israel. You can't call 972 no. when you're calling from Iran. I have listeners from Iran, so hello, Iran. Hello. We're back. <laughs> Indeed, we are. We, are we never left. We never left. We never <laughs> left. So when Twitter outs Chris Williamson, mm -hmm. George Galloway, mm -hmm. and that dreadful lecturer David Miller mm -hmm. as Iranian state media... They are. They've achieved some of their goal, haven't they? Of course they did. But I mean, look, if you, here's the problem that we have in the West. And, and I don't know why we keep doing this, because we've done the same thing in the 1930s, where we're actually running away from reality, unwilling to face, you know, what is literally before our eyes by calling it something else, because admitting to it would mean that we have to actually act against it. And we can't bring ourselves to do that, which is a ridiculous notion, running you know, running away from our responsibilities um, is not helpful. But we have done that, and we're doing that. When you have people like George Galloway, um, who's literally, you know, he's working for Al-Mayadeen Television, which is basically run by Hezbollah, which is run by Iran, ultimately. Um, the fact that he's, you know, hosting very well-known pro-Iranian 
you know, political analysts, journalists, uh, social activists, just tells you exactly, you know, what the agenda is. And what Iran is in the business of doing is actually paying out and rallying around its regime, intellectuals, political analysts, media people, personalities, influencers, so that they would carry out their agenda. And every time, you know, they're giving the West enough for them to digest. They wait for them to digest it. Once they do and they build a tolerance to it, they move on to the next one. So it's like, you know, the boiling of the frog. And so now we begin to unpack the reasons behind why the Iranians, the Islamic regime, the theocracy mm -hmm. hate Israel. They've created this intellectual apparatus around actually something that already exists in their hearts, which is that they hate Jews. They do. They'd hate Jews anyway. They do, but they, they worry about... They, do you know, it's, I think it's very complicated because I've had discussion, because um, I've traveled to Iraq as well, um, and I was curious to try to understand whether this, you know, anti-Semitism that they hide by saying it's anti-Zionism was, you know, particular to Iran and the Islamic regime, or if it was shared across, you know, the Shia Muslim world. Uh, and I found that it is. It's just, it, it kind of manifests in a different way. It has its different textures, its yes. different narratives. Yes, but fundamentally it's the same thing. Fairy tales. But they want us dead. That, that's the yes. bottom line of the story, where they don't believe that um, it, they can be free. So... The Islam that they believe in and that they understand this form of Islamism, which is a political ideology, it's not a faith, it's a political ideology. Um, this cult that they have is expressed in negation of other people. So if you look at the way that the anti-Western, anti-democratic, anti-Zionist, anti-Semitic, um, they're not for anything. They exist in rejection of something else, which is a quite nihilistic way of looking into yes. the world. It's a very... Um, negative worldview. Yes. Um, it, it's it's a kind of form of Palestinianism. It's the same strife. It's very it? suffocating because there is no there is no silver lining at the end of this yeah. rainbow. There's nothing to be looking forward to. It's kind of doomsday scenario. And it's that not surprising only... that they call Independence Day the Nakba. Nakba. Yes. Yeah. It's disaster. very telling. It's very telling. But everything, you know, that the Islamic Republic is. And I would say to an extent today, Shia Islamism is geared towards the negation of life and that the only hope that people have for salvation is actually in death and not any death, martyrdom. Yes. And they have this cult of, you know, Hussein, the, you know, the, the grandson of the prophet who died in Karbala. So they turned, you know, this story that was a story of liberation essentially, and rejection of oppression, because yes. ultimately that was what the story was about. They took that story of, you know, someone aspiring for freedom and turned it into something so negative and nefarious that it now means, you know, it's, it's a call for genocide against other religious minorities. Catherine, does Jeremy Corbyn know this? I'm not sure, he, he, because I know he's quite friendly. I mean, he um, is entirely behind Iran because and the theocratic regime. But yes. he can't, surely, as a man who's brought up in the English countryside, follow through absolutely every part of this. I'm pretty sure that if he was to have a discussion with me or even listen to this recording, that he would tell you that I don't understand anything about, you know, the Islamic Republic and that because I'm a Jewish woman, I'm biased. Right. And that I'm very prejudiced, which is not true, because I leave that I know. And they actually tell you, if you pay attention to what the regime is saying today, and they're saying it more repeatedly now, it's becoming like the frequency has increased. Everything that tells you, for some reason, 
we don't hear it. We dismiss it automatically. You know, when they tell us that they want to build, you know, a nuclear bomb, of course, they said that about three or four times in the past month or so. Um, when they tell us that they want to annihilate, you know, the state of Israel and the Jews within it, we don't pay attention for if some reason. If it quacks like a duck, it is a duck. It is. But the, it, it is It is more than a duck. You know, you have the whole menagerie yeah. with the duck. Um, the but again, people refuse because here's what I believe. There's two things. First of all, the left is so engrossed in this, you know, atoning for colonialism and this idea that, you know, white privileges are actually a thing, um, that they are willing to pedal to the, to the narrative of the regime because they feel that that's the only way that they could maybe potentially, you know, um, end up being the good guys by standing for, you know, the oppressed minority. Now, no offense to the Muslim community, but they're not an oppressed minority. They are actually the majority in yeah. comparison to the Jewish community. Um, and we're not victims either. All we're asking for is to actually, you know, uh, be left alone within the sanctity of our borders. Yes. And that, you know, we actually want to abide by the rules of international law. Yes. And under international law, self-defense is a cardinal right. Which, it's thank goodness, principle. it is a cardinal principle, which, thank goodness, we are now seeing the Gulf Arabs, the Sunni Arabs, mm -hmm. beginning to coalesce around peace with Israel. But there's a reason for As that. As Hillel Neuer said, we want more Israel, not less Israel. Exactly. Okay, so, and of course, the Gulf Arabs have acknowledged, and even some Shia Muslims, like mm -hmm. the Imam of Peace, Mohammed Tawhidi, mm -hmm. he says, you know, we can see that, uh, you know, they've never declared war on Mecca, we've never declared war on you know, anywhere else, Jeddah or whatever it is, way outside the borders of uh, what is Israel. In fact, it's the region of Israel, not even borders of modern the state of Israel, mm -hmm. uh, where, um, where, where the Jewish state could exist in terms of even the Quran's interpretation of uh, what the Jewish homeland could be. Um, and of course, it's now reduced, hasn't it, from the Israeli-Arab conflict, because we are nearly on the edge of a peace between the Israelis and Arabs, and it's now become the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, sponsored by Iran. Obviously. That's it, Obviously. isn't it? I mean, look, if you look today at all the iterations of terror, all role leads to Tehran. And Qatar? Qatar too. Um, Qatar is complicated because I don't believe, I think it's, um, it's an, an alliance of convenience. Right. Um, I don't think that, you know, I don't think that the, the, the government in, in Qatar is underwritten by terror, per se. The ideology moving the government is not terror. Um, I can't say the same about the Islamic Republic. I think that Qatar could be moved away from um, if they decided tomorrow that their interests lie as, elsewhere. Well, Turkey um, has switched sides in, in a year. And it was the biggest one. Could so the, the Qataris, the who are hosting the greatest soft power instrument in the world, mm -hmm. the World Cup, be moved towards their Gulf brothers and sisters of the United Arab Emirates, I think Bahrain, could, or even Saudi Arabia? I think they could. Um, it would take a lot of massaging, but I think they could if they were given an out. If, if they could um, claim somewhat a victory somewhere, or actually have a transition that doesn't force them to renege on everything that they've said prior. Yes, they could. I could I could see that easily because they're quite pragmatic in both countries right. and they're good merchants. So they yes. understand pragmatism. Okay. So I could see it. Um, in my mind, the only reason Qatar, you know, has done the thing that it has done, it's in reaction of, you know, Saudi Arabia's uh, power and ambition. Uh, and because Qatar had ambition of its own and wanted to establish its own footprint. And so it had to find, you know, a, a mean to, um, 
an instrument to carry that that will, that political will. Martin Brotherhood was there. It was a convenient vehicle. Uh, so they embraced that. But it's more, you know, out of, you know, ambition than ideology. So, again, that could be fixed. When it comes to the Islamic Republic, everything about the, the Islamic Republic is about ideology. And in your travels through Iran, there you are with the Ayatollah. You've got other friends too, because your kids were in school. Mm -hmm. You're a mate of Soleimani's daughter? Yes, I was, uh, Not I was actually, well, no, uh, we were in France. We had, we had a few conversations and I, I actually met her in Iraq. Um, so there was, uh, there was a pilgrimage uh, at Bain that takes place every year. And this is when you were a practicing Muslim of some sort? No, I was never really a practicing Muslim. But, but you had just, to go along with it? Well, for the face of it, you have to say that you're Muslim. So you went to Iraq from Iran on a pilgrimage? Yes. Oh, no, it's just, you know, you literally take a plane from London, you stop in Istanbul, and then Istanbul Najaf, and then, right. you know, it, there was a conference there. And as part of the conference, you know, we were taken to the holy cities of Iraq to witness, you know, the Arbanian pilgrimage. So I didn't do the actual pilgrimage, but I was there to witness it. So Soleimani's daughter, he had was a photo there. Yes. with her. So there she is with the Zionists. Yes, and Imad Mokni's daughter, who was actually, um, her father was assassinated by Mossad, allegedly. Yeah. How interested am I sad in you? <laughs> now, look, You're a bit public. I'm, a bit, I'm, a, I'm really public. Uh, but yeah, you know, the is, plain sight guys and girls. Well, well you can make that argument. Um, look, when it comes to, I was actually laughing because this is the first thing that the Islamic regime, you know, will use uh, whenever they disagree with someone. Um, I think um, it kind of backfired on them, uh, this allegation with me, because then they realized that <laughs> so that didn't mean that you let a Mossad agent into your midst and are you that stupid? Um, so they kind of backtrack and they say, no, 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 she's not. Really, she's not. Um, but then now there's a whole back and forth with people arguing whether I am or I'm not. And then people keep asking me the, the question. I'm like, obviously not. Um, but then if I was, I would say that, wouldn't I? So it's like I can't answer that question. No, really. but no, I'm, I'm glad you can't answer it. What a relief! At least we can keep that door open yeah, for you for, we could a, pretend. for a future career. We could um, Paul Harris of the Jewish Telegraph in Manchester mm -hmm. somehow got invited into Arafat's inner lair in Tunisia, <laughs> and um, he did that and then ran a story in his newspaper, and he did it as a kind of "I'll show you, I can do that." to his teammate in the newspaper mm -hmm. you know so he did he got a chat with them Arafat bought him a present you know he ruffled the heads of his kids the maddest thing you've ever heard in your life so he phoned Mossad up afterwards and said do you want to know the inside of the building I can tell you lots and lots of things and they went Wah. it's like as though they kind of knew already or it wasn't that important can I get that for number <laughs> you'd be quite useful you, you'd know even more then but 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 this is this is honestly this is the maddest story I've ever heard in my life do you know the thing is when I you know when I was in the story um it felt quite normal because you know th those people this is the crazy thing is that I think when you like kind of like in within the regime and you know you you're talking to these people um it was never difficult for me to have access to them so you know a lot of people then came you know since came to me and say you know some people spend their entire life working for the regime or at least peddling the regime's agenda uh, and they never get invited to Tehran. They never get to meet, you know, the, the future president of Iran. They never get to meet, you know, certain RSGC figure, um, you know, and they certainly don't get to to anger an entire regime and force several officials, you know, to have press conferences to uh, to say that, you know, 
um, no, she's not a spy, and you know, you know, we, you know, we invited her, but not really. But yeah, she was kind of there. And, yeah, she kind of did all those things, but not really. So they didn't know what to do with me um, because it was all there. I mean, you know, pictures, recordings, everything. So they, yeah. they, they couldn't deny that I was there because I was. Um, and I had access to quite, quite a few people, but it, it was never difficult. So now you work for the Henry Jackson Society. I do. And this is out there, and you're a, an extremely important ally, not just to Henry Jackson, but to the whole of the Western world. Mm -hmm. How important or seriously do they take your story? They're not. Why don't they take I you? I don't know. I don't know. I think there's a lot of... Uh, because I think my, my journey... Uh, I've done it on my own, so it's not like I wasn't working for anybody. No. Um, and I think that because of that, I'm not being ta uh, not taken seriously. I think also th there's a lot of dismissal in the sense that you know I, I didn't follow the that would say the normal trajectory where you know. What's the normal? Well, you know, either you are actually being sent by yes an organization, okay, and you know everything is very much better in control and, and whatnot. Yes. Um, and I kind of like decided to do it. And yeah, I, this is I, more vocational. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I took a vacation anyway, <clears throat> and. Um, and I think also some people, maybe they think it's just it's just too mad um, to be true, and they just wonder how you know little old me just managed to do just that when yeah. I don't know how many people have done it. And I'm not trying to sound arrogant or anything because are you in touch with anyone who has an approximate story like yours? No. Is there anyone like you? Not that I know. Not of. quite. I mean, we some... could we could you could form a club. <laughs> yeah, be a club of one or maybe two. <laughs> I don't know of anyone. I yeah. don't know of anyone else. Yeah, I know that and now, right now a lot of people wish they never had met me because uh, you know I kind you of could became out a bit toxic them. for them. Yeah. What is the future of the Iranian theocracy? It's being held together by fear and of mm -hmm. hate against what they call Zionists, mm -hmm. which is definitely parallel to the UNI. I mean, we might call ourselves Zionists, but we're also Jews. Mm -hmm. We're also citizens of our countries in the free Western world. Mm -hmm. So um, they are terribly paranoid about people that they don't really know. Um, they have set out, I don't know, some kind of fatwa to destroy the state of Israel. And of course, probably every Jew in the world is a bonus. What oh, future yes. have they I got? Mean, what future have they got? They've got no future. No, they have no future because, I mean, look, uh, first of all, I mean, in Jewish history, we, we came across, you know, that kind of evil um, rather often. And every time we survived it. So we will survive that evil yeah I'm not concerned about this because and, and I do think that um, there is a strength uh, within the Jewish community that is quite very often misunderstood um, dismissed yeah a lot because um, you know maybe we know as vocals we ought to be or people tend to kind of because there's quite a lot of hatred or internalized hatred when it comes to us so people tend to dismiss us quite a lot yes um, at their peril of course yes uh, we're quite resilient. We, That's we are what extremely I'm resilient. Say, we're quite resilient. And, and also the thing that people tend to, to forget is that I think the reason why we survive evil so well um, is because we have a profound love and um, respect for life. Mm. Um, and we're quite determined to make the world a better place for our children, whatever that means for us. And I think that this says a lot to, you know, uh, to our ability to not only maneuver through hard times, but also, um, you know, why Israel is the way it is today. Uh, how literally from, you know, a desert and sand, we managed to, you know, to build um, 
a beautiful, thriving democracy. Did you at any point in Tehran fear for your life? No. Because you were never outed at that point? No. Do you fear for your life walking the streets of London? No. Do you care? No. No, because first of all, I don't, I don't think I'm in danger. Um, I don't have state secrets. No, you're I just, you're just a, a humiliation or an embarrassment for them. They had many. I mean, they probably will have bigger ones coming. The bigger the pride, the harder the fall. Well, well, that, that's not up to me. I mean, that's their problem. Um, yeah, that's, that's but, theirs. you know, I, I think, look, I think what I do have um, is that I, I know exactly who they are. And I understand, I understand the psyche of the Islamic Republic. I know what it stands on. I know what... Um, I know what it, thrive, what it thrives on. I understand how it functions, how it breathes. Um, and that is, in my mind, a lot more useful than, you know, any, you know, random data or, or piece of intelligence that you could get. So, you know, obviously I don't have, you know, um, I don't know where the nuclear sites are. I don't know none of those things. Um, and, and I think it's irrelevant. Other people could do that a lot better than me. They don't yes. need me to do that. But I think it's quite important to have a read on the Islamic Republic, I think it's important to know your enemy and to truly understand how, how it thinks and what it wants um, and how it goes about getting what it wants um, to try to defeat it. And you've mentioned in a conversation before we went to air that they have murder on their mind. And yes, they do. I'm thinking about Salman Rushdie, look, that terrible stabbing attack on, on him, a British citizen, yeah. it should be noted. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it's not just that. You know, here's the thing with Salman Rushdie. And again, I think like we're missing the point all the time is that, you know, people saw this and say, oh, my God, you know, he, yet another terror attack. Yes, it was a terrorist attack. Um, but it's something that, by the way, we bear the responsibility for it because our lack of courage when it comes to standing up for free speech and actually, um, you know, opposing the rise of Islamism and um, being so blinded by the fact that we have been infiltrated because we're quite arrogant and we refuse to admit that it has happened, that we have left ourselves open, that they have played and used and utilized our values and tradition and um, our desire you know, to promote free speech and to give people a chance to express themselves and to live free under our laws, um, that we actually have given the devil you know, the keys to the kingdom, quite literally, when we're talking about the UK. Um, and I think that we need to we need to stop this. We need to to reassess and understand that yes, we have been infiltrated. Yes, it could be fixed, but we need to seriously stop deluding ourselves into thinking that it's not happening. It is happening, and this attack is actually very telling because if you look at the context of it all, the fact that while Salman Rushdie was being stabbed to death, because ultimately they wanted to, he wanted to kill him. Thank God he survived. Thank you. Yes, I mean he's he, I mean he's a, this man is a survivor, a hero. He's I mean come on. Um, you know, and, and I hope that he will be okay. I hope that he will, you know, he will come out of it and, and be fine. Um, but I think the, the, the fact that diplomats at the same time were sitting in Vienna negotiating the JCPOA and that our diplomats were not pulled out of that room on principle. Yes. For me is a betrayal. It's of, unbelievable that we shouldn't bring those talks to an end. We allowed. It's so most, easy to do. I know. Where we allowed the most dictatorial of regime to attack one of our most renowned thinker. Yes. Someone that we had a duty of care towards and we had we had a duty we had our duty was to protect him because he became 
a bastion of free speech. Um, you know, he did what he did because he entrusted us with his protection. So he went out there and did the thing that he did, thinking that, you know, his courage would be repaid by our dedication to his safety. And we failed him collectively. Um, and I'm so grateful that he did not die on stage because free speech would have died with him. Yes. And I don't think that people understand that. It's not just Salman Rushdie that was being stabbed to death. It's all of us. Our ability to speak freely, our ability to move freely, our ability to think, our ability to formulate an idea in opposition to that of others and to not be punished for it. So in confronting Iran, we should attack them and bring them down, but not at the expense of our own civil liberties yeah. and our own free speech, but we should recognize them as a deathly enemy in the same way as we've done in this country before. And I'm thinking of perhaps Nazi Germany and mm -hmm. any other invaders Absolutely. in recent history. Absolutely. Do you know my grandfather used to say something to me when I was a kid? He used to tell me that in order to defeat evil, you have to name it first. Right. And that you have to actually formulate what is it that makes it evil? What is it that you're fighting? What is it that you're standing for? And he also used to tell me that the only way for you to defeat evil and to survive it is to know exactly who you are and what you stand for. And I'm afraid that we have lost our ways. So the day that we decide that indeed we want to defend free speech and we want to stand for a secular democratic state, then maybe. And maybe, just maybe, we ought to take our cue from Israel, because I think Israel is doing a magnificent job in doing just that. Catherine, how has this emboldened your Judaism? How does it manifest itself now you're in the free world? Are you more of a Zionist? Are you a Jew? But, yeah. you know, in terms of practice, you know, where are you? I, I, I don't, because, and, and I think um, when it comes to religion, I think I've seen so much radicalism, so much hatred. Um, that I'm trying to unpack that trauma, mm -hmm. if I'm completely mm -hmm. honest with you. So the whole religious side of things scares me a little bit um, because I don't want to... I have this fear of losing myself into it. Um, so I'm taking baby steps. Um, in terms of my Zionism, uh, that I don't have any doubts. That's not so difficult. Um, yeah, I would consider myself to be, um, yeah, I'm, I am a Zionist. Can I tell you something about this that our rabbi said in synagogue? Mm -hmm. Obviously, the zealotry that you encountered mm -hmm. was very bad, and you could lose yourself in it, like so many millions of followers of Islam who've become Islamists and terror supporters. Even the moderates who are living in this country are switched on by terrible wars like Gaza mm -hmm. into being anti-Semitic. I've mm -hmm. seen it with my own eyes amongst people that were acquaintances of mine. Scary. And football commentators who should know better than keep their gob shut about such things with 8 million followers on Twitter, people like him. Mm -hmm. And But there's good zealotry as well. And the good zealotry lies in our community, people like Chabad, Yes. And people like Rabonim who, you know, they wear the beard, they daven three times a day, but they're good zealots. I agree with you. I agree with you. But I think it's just, um, it's about finding your way back, mm. I think. And I wasn't raised, um, I was raised very secular. Um, so it's not something that um, I'm used to, you know, that, that part of my identity. Yeah. So I think it's something that I need to, to discover. But I think, you know, all in good time, uh, my kids are definitely more 
proactive in that. Uh, there's a, but there's a lot of, there's, there's a profound, you know, love for Judaism and who we are. Um, that is definitely there. Uh, and I don't think it in, in, never really left. It's, um, I think it's at the essence of who we are, which I think is a beautiful thing. I was actually hearing um, this morning on TikTok, uh, Rudy Rushman define Judaism. Uh, and he was saying that Judaism is not a religion and that the word religion is actually something that, you know, the West kind of created and engineered. Um, and it doesn't encompass who we are. We are a lot yeah. more than this. Um, and I agree. I agree there's so much to being Jewish and what, what that means. And it means different things for different people at different time in our lives. Um, but it doesn't mean that we're not all of those things at the same time. And sometimes we are living contradictions. Um, but that's the beauty about Judaism is that you can actually find your way back. And it's as if you never left, really, because it was always part of you anyway. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's where I'm at right now. One of the most amazing things is this. It makes for profound one-on-one -on -one conversations. I know. And it is a great sobering thing which provides great rich conversation. And this has been one of the richest. Oh, thank you. Really, it's been, I'm bowled over. I want to come back. Yeah, there might be a part three. It probably will be. <laughs> there you go. See? What perfect you agree end. with me. The best guests and their most heartfelt views a relay of their missions to a worldwide audience. Hi, it's Johnny again, just popping in at the end of this one. 100 episodes along, and I'm proud that it's fast become the podcast of record. This is coverage of the Jewish and Israeli worlds that just doesn't get properly aired in mass media, and I'm not ashamed to ask for your help. A one-off donation is always gratefully received to support my efforts, but a monthly donation really gets our service off the ground. Your donation can also be made with gift aid. And it's so easy to do. Just click on this. Donorbox.org slash JG podcast. That's Donorbox.org slash JG podcast. Are you in? Please share my series with your friends and thank you for listening. Johnny Gould's Jewish State is supported by UK Teremet, promoting philanthropy.